2: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nallpothanchel. Remember sex ed? I cringe thinking back to that class in high school when the boys and the girls were separated for the talk and having to watch those weird videos. Yet sex education is important. Today where we live, we talk about why. And we wanna hear from you. What do you wish you had learned in sex ed? Keep it clean and call in 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at where we live. Some listeners tweeted their memories. Eileen shared with us, in my Catholic grammar school and high school, there was really no such thing as sex ed. We weren't even sure what we shouldn't be doing because nobody spoke frankly about biology. And without Dr. Ruth, He was on the radio once a week, we wouldn't even have understood basic biology. Dr. Ruth is 94 today, and I understand still talking and writing about sex. Thank goodness. Bilal had a similar experience as Eileen tweeting, I went to Catholic school in Waterbury. We had no sex ed. In eighth grade, they made us sign purity cards before separating boys from girls. Boys talk about music and sports. Girls were talked at about modesty and restraint. And queer inclusive sex ed? I didn't dare to dream. Now by 2021, we'd hope the approach has changed, right? But sexual health education is not mandated in Connecticut. In fact, about two dozen states have mandatory sex education in public schools, and there are no guidelines for private schools. So what are students hearing or not hearing? Joining us now on Zoom to talk about that is Tasman Weisgerber, who works with ANSWER, a national organization that provides sexual education training for teens and adults. ANSWER is based at Rutgers. Tas, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me on. So when we think about sex ed, we all have these memories. But when did sexual health education really start in public schools?
3: So it's been in the schools uh, over 100 years now. So it started in the early 1900s, and they mostly talked about hygiene, and there was uh, an introduction of purity, Um, so a little bit about what you mentioned that you went through in school. And then once the war started, there was a lot of uh, prevention of STIs, and then once the 1980s and the AIDS epidemic, uh, there was a lot of HIV prevention. And the Surgeon General actually, in 1986, uh, made a statement saying, we really need to have sex ed in schools, and actually uh, stated that we explicitly needed to talk about heterosexual and homosexual relationships. And then in the 1990s, uh, sex ed grew and the teen birth rate sank. And since then, there's been a divide in the country with some states being more progressive and other states declining and including less and less information in their courses.
2: I think uh, both Tess, the producer and I, were surprised to learn that in Connecticut, which many people see as pretty progressive, there is no mandate for sexual health education. And so when we talk about sex ed, how it's evolved, I mean, I think some would state or cite religious affiliations as a reason why there isn't a mandate, but can you talk about you know some of the thinking around uh, this course?
3: Yeah, so a lot of people are fearful that talking about sex, especially with younger people, that it's going to uh, cause them to go out and have sex at an earlier rate. And that's simply not the case. So if we look at a country like the Netherlands, they actually begin sex education at four years old and they continue sex education throughout the course of their school career. And they have much better outcomes than we have here. They have Uh, The lowest uh, teen pregnancy rates in the world, they have much higher rates of contraception use um, and they overall have a better outlook on uh, their sexual experiences than folks here in the US, as well as five times lower HIV rates. Um, So It definitely goes to show that they are by simply talking about uh, sex and sexuality and learning about it in school isn't going to cause these negative outcomes in our in our teens like folks fear.
2: That's really interesting. You said that in the Netherlands, they start sex ed at four years old. And so talk about that. Contrast it with what, um, you know, students in public schools in our country, when they're learning about, you know, biology and more about, you know, their body and, you know, what's age appropriate, because I'm thinking to my children, I think in fifth grade is when we got the note that they're going to be watching the video about puberty, but you know, nothing before fifth grade, at least in our experience.
3: Yeah, so there are some schools that will introduce a puberty education somewhere around fourth or fifth grade. Some even do it in sixth grade, which I would say is a little bit late. (laughs) A lot of times folks are already starting to experience puberty before then. And some schools don't do any sex education until high school which you're really missing that whole puberty section. And then if we're really lucky, there are some schools that will begin sex education um, in kindergarten and continuing. And that doesn't mean talking about intercourse. <laughs> All that means is that we're talking about safe and unsafe touch. We're talking about what their body parts are called. We're talking about consent, making sure and not consent for sex, right? We're talking about basics of consent. Before you hug your friend, ask your friend, is it okay if I hug you? Before you play with their hair. Um, And also letting students know that their bodies are their own. And not only should they be asking for consent from others, but they're allowed to give and refuse consent themselves. And that's really important part of um, a really good foundation for building upon later on in the sex education courses. So it would be really great if that was more widespread.
2: You're hearing on Zoom with us, Tasman Weisgerber, who works with ANSWER, the national organization that provides sexual education training for teens and adults based at Rutgers. We're talking about sex ed. We'd love to hear from you about what you remember about this uh, time and whether it was uh, middle school or high school for you, or if you're a parent today, you know, how you want your school, uh, your child's school to approach uh, sex ed. The number 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 WMPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. We're going to be hearing from a health educator in just a couple of minutes. But when we think about the mandates and what is and is not required in states, are there still places that teach abstinence only?
3: Yes, there are. So in the United States, there are millions of dollars every year that are poured into abstinence only education, although in recent years they have rebranded to call themselves um, sexual re- risk avoidance education. However, it's still the same abstinence only, um, often abstinence only until marriage courses that focus only on abstinence, oftentimes don't talk about condom use or birth controls, uh, birth control options. Um, and they're really missing a lot of that important information that teens need. And in a comprehensive sex education, course, we are talking about abstinence, we don't exclude it. However, we understand that even if it's not during their school career, at some point in their lives, most people are going to be sexually active. And we need to set people up for success and be able to make the healthiest and best decisions for themselves. And if we're not educating about them, uh, educating about these options, then many times folks don't get the information
2: michelle rawcliffe is here with us she's a health educator at woodstock middle school
4: michelle welcome to the show hi thanks for having me
2: so tell us how your class uh your the, the sex ed that you're teaching your students you know how you approach it and maybe a little bit of response to what taz has already shared with us
4: Taz has shared so much good
2: information
4: that is a great source of advocacy for Teachers like myself that teach in a small rural district that has no direct curriculum supervisor or anyone to advocate for health ed in our school system other than our superintendent or principal who are extremely supportive of what I do in the classroom. My approach is more of a skills-based approach to health education where there, there aren't necessarily Uh, focused classes on sex ed primarily. Uh, For example, in my fifth grade class, similar to what Taz was saying, I teach the skill of communication throughout the entire year, and one of the final skills that sort of is a culminating skill is refusal skills. So the students practice and rehearse the skill of refusal and build upon all the communication skills that they learned that year, and then their sort of final performance or assessment is they perform the refusal of consent. And we talk about, just like Taz said, we're not talking about consent for sexual acts, consent for any sort of relationship acts that would happen with their friends, like hugging or um, holding hands, or even a friend trying to convince them to steal or use alcohol. So we talk, we use the word consent in fifth grade, and we talk about and teach the skill and practice the skill of refusal. So my approach is really more of a skills based with content.
2: When I asked Taz about um, abstinence only education still being taught in some places, you know, why is this problematic? Because I just think about, you know, how everyone, there's a way to find information immediately, and that's to go on the internet. And so you want to be careful about, you know, where you're getting your information. And so, and also the way we talk to children, um, if they feel like they're being judged, or, you know, they start to tune us out. So I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about that.
4: Yeah, so abstinence only, or abstinence is absolutely a great option and when we teach about decision making, that is an option that students can choose. We also taught when I teach analyzing influences, we can analyze our the influences in our lives on how we make those choices. And if a student has values, strong values in their family that encourage them to choose abstinence, then then that's great. However, there are other options. And if students are taught how to make a, a good, healthy decision, then they can choose the right one, and maybe that is abstinence, or maybe it isn't. So um, hopefully they get those skills to decide whether or not abstinence is the best choice for them. When it comes to sexually explicit media, even our young students have access to it, and I I do an a informal poll of how many students have witnessed something that is sexually explicit, that they cannot unsee. It gives them that queasy feeling in their stomach. About 90% when I informally poll them will say that they've seen something that they can't unsee on social media. And that's, those are things that they interact with. So I often talk about, well, what happens when we see this and what should we do? And then how is this maybe not reality? And I also teach the skill in seventh grade of accessing valid and reliable health information products and services so they can easily detect what is a valid source and what isn't, because there's a lot out there and there's a, a wide variety
3: out there.
2: Uh, coming up, I'm going to um, bring Taz back into the conversation from ANSWER about some of the uh, the, the tools and uh, the training uh, that they uh, provide for teens and adults, but even uh, even a YouTube channel, right, and having a specific website with uh, um, information uh, that uh, is evidence-based and, and making sure like where the information comes from. But I wanted to bring in a perspective of a parent uh, calling in now. It's Kim from Woodbridge. Kim, what did you want to share?
5: Good morning. I just wanted to share the distinction. My daughter and I went through the same school system in Woodbridge. And when I graduated in the 80s, um, my AP bio teacher gave us the freshman Yale packet about birth control. And we discussed it and we were incredibly well equipped um, to carry on. And as far as I know, no one in that class got pregnant out of out of marriage. Um, when my daughter went through... Her said, ed, um, I don't remember whether this was freshman or sophomore year, was taught by the gym teacher. They were not taught about consent in any way. And pretty much the gym teacher talked about the boys popping the girls' cherries and told them where to buy lube. And I'm just horrified,
2: horrified. I could see why. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, Taz, can you respond to what Kim shared with us?
3: Yeah, so um, we definitely need to have more comprehensive education than that. There should be a lot more um, discussion on many different topics regarding relationships and condoms and birth control and um, various other topics. So uh, it shouldn't be exclusive to that. And we certainly shouldn't be talking about boys popping girls' cherries. That's definitely not an appropriate way to go about that. And that's one reason why answer is here is to provide the training to professionals to make sure that they are informed and they know how to approach sex education with teens and how to do it in a non-judgmental inclusive way where we're not leaving out different groups of people um, or making people feel funny. Like the, like saying that, uh, you know, talking about popping cherries, definitely not an appropriate thing to uh, talk about with the young people. So sorry that your daughter experienced that.
2: Kim, if you're still with us, when you heard that, did you you know reach out to the teacher or talk to someone at the school? Because it just doesn't seem like that's something they should be hearing from a gym teacher.
5: I did not because uh, the conversation I had with my daughter after she had left. Um, amity. So um at that point um no, but it it still it was very wink wink not not the boys. Um and nothing about um any sort of LGBTQ affirmation or just it was not even mentioned. So mm-hmm. so disappointed and one of the supposedly one of the better schools in the state.
2: Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that um, that with us here on Where We Live. Uh, for other parents who want to join or if you want to talk about your experience with sex ed in, in in your school, the number 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Michelle, when we think about the training that's out there or how, um, you know, the state um provides or maybe does not provide uh, oversight about this very important uh, curriculum. Can you talk about that?
4: Yeah, of course. I, I'm so sorry for that um, person that had that experience. And f- first and foremost, I am a strictly health education certified teacher because I did not feel that I would be a good PE teacher and I think that schools right now are are hiring dual certified teachers, and they're putting they they're using these teachers to teach both. And I think that would put teachers that are that wanted to teach p e, even though they' are certified, it's putting them in the classroom to teach health when maybe that's not what they prefer or what they feel their strength is. and And that's I think the first one of the first and foremost, Issues is that we're putting teachers um, in positions that maybe they're not trained for. The other thing is we don't have a supervisor at the state department of education that is advocating for us or ensuring that we're getting quality health education in schools or that we're getting PD. Or um, we have a person that is kind of stepping up to that role, and he's wonderful and supportive. But we have about. I would say 60% of teachers are like me and that we don't have a direct supervisor that's overseeing our curriculum or making sure that we are getting enough PD. So that is, uh, that's concerning. We, we would It would be great if we could have someone at the state level who could help us with policies within districts um, that could help us advocate and provide that training. We do have something starting up called a health cadre where a, group of health teachers like myself are sort of stepping up to create this all on our own. We're not getting paid. We have no money to do it, but we're trying to step up and go out to school districts and teach teachers like this person that um, doesn't really have the strength or the skills to teach. And and so we're kind of trying to do that for our teachers in state. I also want to add really quickly before we run out of time that there is a resource called Amaze. Um, and they are a, they have a YouTube channel and they could also provide some resources for parents out there, like the the caller that you just had. If there's a question or a concern and the parent doesn't know how to
2: have that conversation,
4: there are some resources
2: on amaze.org. Uh, Taz with answer. Uh, can you talk about, I know you're based at uh, answers based at Rutgers and in some states that you know, may be doing a better job that have that oversight from a state level to help with curriculum, to help teachers with this kind of training? Uh,
3: yes. So first, I just wanted to uh, thank Michelle. Amaze.org is actually uh, a culmination of our organization and several other organizations that have come together to help create the content for that website. So thanks for the plug. <laughs> um, And yes, there are definitely some schools or school districts that are receiving federal or state money, or sometimes it's just a school district that just feels really strongly about getting this information for their faculty and for their students. And they will have organizations like us come in and provide trainings, Uh, especially this year. We've been receiving a lot of trainings around um, LGBTQ youth. And especially in New Jersey, we have new New Jersey state learning standards, which are sets of information that teachers have to cover, content that they have to cover in the school year, and it's much more inclusive of LGBTQ youth than in previous years, as well as new mandates in New Jersey, where uh, you have to be inclusive of LGBTQ youth, particularly trans youth. So we've been getting requests for a lot of training around that. And Um, Oftentimes it's uh, throughout the entire school year, so we'll assist with offering trainings, then we will provide technical assistance hours, so helping with creating curriculum, overviewing um, curriculum, uh, looking at policies and procedures of the schools and school districts. So there are lots of different ways that we help. Um, And one of our newer options this that's new to this past year is we offer a certificate in adolescent sex education basics for professionals, and that's offered um, through Rutgers University. And it's all online, and it's a great way for teachers to get a little bit more content and help build their skills and get a certificate to show that. So we've definitely been doing um, lots of work.
2: Uh, Michelle Rockliff. Uh, before we let you go, we know you, you have the school day to attend to, uh, but when we think about the pandemic and how much uh, students uh, missed out on, how did this impact sex ed education?
4: It it, it definitely impacted it greatly. Uh, there's a, a three R's curriculum from Advocates for Youth. Did created a Google Classroom, so I actually. Use some of their lessons, but it, it really, you didn't know who was on the other end. You didn't know if there was an unsafe situation for a student. So it, it was challenging. And I used my anonymous question box, a virtual anonymous question box a lot. And I, I focused again on the skills as much as I could so that if I was delivering content that might be inappropriate for younger siblings or um, it may be a conversation that parents have yet to have with their child that they I was focusing on the skills, but it, it was extremely challenging this past year. And I'm really grateful to be back in the classroom with my mm-hmm. students.
2: And what are you hearing from parents? So, uh, you know, do you ever get pushback with what um, the students will be taught in your sex ed class? And, you know, how do you how do you handle that?
4: It's, it's interesting because most parents will will tell me directly, thank you so much for teaching this. I'd rather you teach it than, than me, but I really, really value parents as partners. I, I want parents to be part of my classroom and what I'm teaching. I want them to have these conversations with their children, and I want my, what I do in class to spark those conversations or be a continuation of those conversations. So when we talk about analyzing influences and students talk about their values, I want them to have conversations with their families about their values before they even get to my class. So I I really don't get a lot of pushback at all. I think it might be like half of a percent of students will be pulled out for just the sex ed portion. But that's hard to determine what that is because I'm teaching the skills. So the content, if I talk about consent, it may come up in a communication unit. Or if I talk about analyzing influences, there may be a conversation about LGBTQ, I can't pronounce it, but there may be a conversation about transgender or gender identity, sexual orientation. So it may come up not in a specific unit. So, and I I think another thing that you had mentioned is that um, sexual assault awareness is mandated in our state. So we do have to teach about that in some way to our students. And unfortunately, some students can be exempt from that. And again, I only have about less than 0.5%, I would say. And uh, what makes me nervous is that those children are not getting that safety information and that, that really worries me, that if they get pulled out of that conversation, they'll be missing potentially life-saving information.
2: You've been hearing Michelle Rockliffe here on Where We Live. She's a health educator at Woodstock Middle School in Connecticut. Michelle, thank you for your time. We appreciate it.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Staying with us is Taz Weisgerber, who works with ANSWER, a national organization that provides sexual education training for teens and adults. What do you wish you had learned from your sex ed class in school? We're going to take your calls right after a short break. Rachel shared she wished she had learned the difference between lust and love practical information about the different types of birth control based on real world experience, not just reading the manual. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
1: So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center with a special ECMO on-the-go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery.
6: For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Don't have sex, because you will get pregnant and die. Don't have sex in the missionary position. Don't have sex standing up. Just don't do it, promise? Okay, everybody take some rubbers.
2: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nalpith That was Coach Carr from the movie Mean Girls, teaching a not-so-comprehensive sex ed class. We're talking about sex education, why it's so important, why it needs to change from uh, generations past, and we remember those classes. Uh, with us on Zoom is Taz Weisgerber with ANSWER, a national organization that provides sexual education training for teens and adults. You can join us to 888-720-967. Seven. That's 720 WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Debbie's calling in from Southington. Debbie, you're on the show. Hi. This topic is so timely for me because
1: just in the past month, I completed a different training in doing sexual health education, and just started teaching the course to ninth graders last week. Um, and I'm excited about it, because in addition to providing a lot of factual information, just like has been discussed already on the program, there's a lot of emphasis on values clarification, communication skills, and accessing reliable resources. Um, And you can see already that the students are very interested. You know, they may be hesitant to participate, but they're quiet and paying attention, for sure.
2: Now, Debbie, I understand that you're at a private school. And so talk about, you know, the you know how you're able to come up with the curriculum. Does the state mandate any of this, or are you you're on your own with uh, the administrators at your school?
0: Well, it was decided between the...
1: Um, health services staff at the school and the administrators that they wanted to provide this to our students. And the curriculum that we were able to purchase is evidence-based and actually shown to reduce teen pregnancy rates. So we haven't had any pushback so far Um, And it's, you know, the parents were all informed that there would be a sexual health education component to the health class this year. Um, But so far, there haven't been any problems.
2: Well, Debbie, thank you uh, for calling in. Uh, uh, Taz, you're with us. How how did you want to respond to what Debbie shared?
3: I just... I want to say thank you, Debbie, for um, providing the sex education. Um, it's often in private schools, as other callers who have called in um, or folks that wrote on Facebook uh, stated that it's often completely left out. Um, when it is talked about, I uh, have a friend of the family who went to private school her whole life, and she said that they had a very minimal talk about sex education, but even when they did, um, they wouldn't even use the word condom, they would just say the C thing. So um, there's often not great information about it, and so I'm glad to hear that you're using an evidence-based program and curriculum and uh, getting the information to the to the students, so thank you.
2: Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, that's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, Keith's calling in from Windsor. Keith, go ahead.
6: Well, yeah, um, with all sex education, I think overlooked a lot is questions of disability related to sex and sex education and sexuality. I don't know if you could discuss at all.
2: Definitely, Keith. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, Taz, if you were able to hear Keith, his connection was a little bit hard to understand, but you know, talking about sex education for people with disabilities.
3: Absolutely. Um, it's very important that youth with disabilities, whether they be physical, mental, cognitive, whatever the case may be, it's vital that they get the information um, that their peers are getting. They are often completely lost. Left- left out of the conversation, particularly if they're not in general education courses. And oftentimes, particularly youth with intellectual disabilities are at higher risk of sexual abuse and sexual assault, and um, sometimes even at risk for becoming unknowingly becoming a sexual predator. And that's really a shame because it doesn't have to happen. And they should and must be included in sex education and receive the same information as their peers. And they should be discussed in the course of the curriculum. And, you know, it should be known that just because someone has some form of disability doesn't completely mean that they're not a sexual being. Um, And oftentimes that's the case, especially for caregivers and the adults who are helping folks with disabilities. And it's really a shame. So that is something that we are trying to improve.
2: You know, we're talking. We're focusing on what's taught in schools, but when we think about the disability community, uh, maybe individuals who may not be living um, with their uh, their immediate family, and just having that across the board training for the people that care for them as well, Taz.
3: Absolutely. Uh, I had a job previously where I was doing a lot more direct education with youth, and I frequently got called to different um, homes where folks were living, or um, there's oftentimes schools for 18 to 21-year-old youth with disabilities to help them transition into adulthood. And the, the really great programs would have us come in and provide education for them because they knew that it was something that they hadn't been receiving in their previous years, whether it be through education or families or whatever the case may be. So there definitely are some programs that are doing a great job and including that information for them. And sadly, there are many that are not.
2: Again, you can join us 888-720-9677 as we talk about sex education in schools. Diane from Farmington, are you still with us? Go ahead. Hi.
6: Yes, I am. Thanks, Susie. This is an amazing conversation. Um, I caught the tail end of Michelle, the educator, and including the LGBTQ in that conversation, and that was really what I was calling in because I was going to ask, do they actually include as an approach to this? And I did comment before being put on hold about how Um, This generation, whether parents want to realize it or identify it, there's like an underlying, I might call it, like a sexual revolution going on. Um, The kids are not necessarily being confined to heteronormative Christian values like in the past, you know, terms like pansexual, non-binary, things that are becoming more mainstream, um, bisexual, that... The students, you know, may be exploring, being exposed to on social media. I also loved her comment about how the um, question being asked about, you know, what have you seen anything on social media that you can't unsee, and about 90% of the kids raised their hands. Um, so it's a very, very important conversation. Um, you know, and also the gentleman that brought up Keith about the, you know, with disabilities, That that is definitely something to be included because just because you're, you know, have a disability doesn't mean like the other caller said that you don't have any sexual identity or, you know, being to part of you. And the other part, too, is also that the sex education is not just about like preventing pregnancy. You know, I know that there is STD teaching, um, you know, and that's something that needs to be talked about with, like,
2: same-sex couples, Um, and if
6: parents don't, you know, feel comfortable, maybe they need to have separate classes for students identifying in that way. And
2: that's my
6: comment, maybe also my question.
2: Oh, thank you, Diane, uh, for sharing that with us. A lot to unpack there, Taz. I just want to mention, uh, because Michelle uh, Rockcliffe had to go on to her school day, of course, uh, you know, I think she makes a point to use a gender-neutral language in the classroom. Taz, why is that important?
3: Yeah, so it's absolutely important to be inclusive of the LGBTQ community, Um, not only discuss. Thing, the, you know, relationships and, you know, the folks that are transgender, but like you said, also making sure that you're using inclusive language. So when you're talking about relationships, instead of saying boyfriend or girlfriend, you can use the term partner or um, for folks who might be trans, if you're teaching about anatomy, instead of saying um, a woman's breasts, you can just say breasts. You don't need to use the gendered language that can be very offensive for folks who are transgender or intersexed. And intersex. And so it's really important that we are being inclusive of the LGBTQ community and doing whatever we can to make them feel included in the lessons, because the moment they feel excluded, they are no longer going to be be paying attention. And once you lose them, they're not going to be receiving the information. And it's really important that they do receive it because they are at higher risk for um, many negative sexual outcomes, including higher rates of pregnancy.
2: A while ago, Where We Live did a show about intersex individuals, uh, but for listeners who have just heard you use that term and may be unfamiliar, can you describe that?
3: Yeah, sure. So intersex basically means that um, at birth or at some point throughout someone's lives, it has been realized that the sex, so when we're born, there we're often assigned a sex at birth, and that's generally male or female. And the way that folks decide that is often by taking a look at your external anatomy. Sometimes it's not so clear. So we often will look at chromosomes and hormones and internal anatomy as well. And so intersex means that one out of those four things doesn't align completely female or completely male. And that, is, that occurs in about one in every 100 births. So
2: it's quite common. Um, And so that would be um, someone who is intersex. Thank you, Taz Weisgerber here with us from ANSWER, a national organization that provides sexual education training for teens and adults. We need to take a quick break. I'll continue to take your calls right after. I just wanted to bring up a point that a listener tweeted. She wanted some us to mention some resources, including an author by the name of Peggy Ornstein or Ornstein. Can you talk about that author or any other resources for our listeners?
3: Absolutely. There are so many resources um, that are available for educators, parents, youth. Um, There are many websites like what Michelle mentioned earlier, the Amaze.org. We also have a website for high school youth called sexetc.org, which is peer created youth created content for um, other youth. So that's a really great resource as well as for college age use, we have have Sex Etc University. And there are, um, like we said, many different books and resources. Um, One that I love um, in particular for young people is um, Robie Harris. And she creates um, books, I believe for ages four and up that um, provide really great comprehensive information for young people that is age appropriate, but that lets them know what happens, how babies are made and um, all those other great, the the wonderful questions that they may ask that parents might be completely stumped when they get asked. Um, So it's a great resource for parents to have as well so that they know how they can answer those questions in an age appropriate way. Um, So yeah, I I think a simple, Google search um, might help you find some really great um, resources. And especially, like I said, the the Roby Harris books are wonderful. I actually gift them when I go to baby showers.
2: <laughs> oh, Nice. And when Nancy tweeted and she mentioned Peggy Ornstein or Ornstein, I don't want to say her name incorrectly, but the two books that Peggy wrote, Girls and Sex and Boys and Sex. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanshul. Back after short break. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. We've been talking about sex education with my guest Taz Weisgerber with ANSWER, a national organization that provides sexual education training for teens and adults. Taz, we've spent a lot of time talking about um, the importance of comprehensive sex ed and inclusivity, but how difficult is it to get school districts uh, to th- rethink their curriculum?
3: That's a great question. So. Um, Fortunately, many schools have been um, updating and creating mandates, so many school districts and statewide um, you know, policies are requiring that it become more comprehensive, so uh, that makes it a lot easier. However, um, there are a lot of schools and states, um, you know which states I'm sure, that um They are becoming, they are regressing and they are, there are many states where the sex education curriculum isn't required to be medically accurate, um, isn't required to be comprehensive. Um, Some states you're not allowed to even talk about LGBTQ folks. um, And if you do, it has to be in a negative light. So there's definitely some areas in our country that could use a lot of improvement.
2: And when we think about uh, the parents role in this discussion, you know, schools uh, allow parents to opt out if they're uncomfortable with their children, Uh, getting this lesson in school, you know, what's your take on that?
3: I mean, parents absolutely have a right to um, what they want their child to be receiving as far as education goes. However, I think a lot of times parents simply don't completely understand um, when they choose to opt out um, right now there's an attack on sex education in the country that um, is very a, a very a very small minority however they have a loud voice sometimes and they are um, making it seem like we're you know, teaching children how to do sexual behaviors or that we're, you know, teaching them about uh, showing them pornography and all these very false claims. And in fact, there's often a very, very small percentage of students as Michelle mentioned that uh, do end up getting opted out of sex education. So parents do overwhelmingly support in uh, comprehensive sex education for their teens.
2: Uh, Claire is uh, calling in from West Haven. We asked uh, listeners to share uh, their memories of sex ed or just observations. Claire, what did you want to share with us?
0: Hi, thanks for taking my call. I wanted to uh, share uh, that my mom, Mary Raduzewski, created uh, a curriculum for sex education when she was working at Notre Dame High School in West Haven. which is, uh, you know, a, a Catholic boy school, and um, it was called at the time, which is was the early eighties. She called it Man and Woman, and she also had uh, a parenting class, which featured uh, a component of uh, women in the in the neighborhood or pa- parents in the neighborhood, I should say would bring their children their toddler age children uh, for a couple of hours and you know the students would have to take their coats and give them a snack and and things like that it was like hands-on parenting training but um, anyway I just wanted to this was something that was very dear to her heart um, writing this curriculum and getting a grant for doing it at uh, Notre Dame High School and I still run into people uh, today uh boys men who uh say i had sex with your mom and i got an a so um <laughs> oh my i just wanted i just wanted to mention that that um
2: yeah yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that and the legacy that um, she left uh, within the, the schools and helping students um, learn. Uh, Claire, we appreciate uh, your time today calling in. You know, before we we run out of time, Taz, I was thinking about you know we started the the conversation talking about how so many of us were uncomfortable when it was time for for sex ed and you know maybe the lessons that we should have learned that you know we didn't learn. Uh, but I'm I'm wondering about when we think about how 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 to make children more comfortable about this topic and comfortable with their bodies. You know, maybe some final tips uh, from you that could help parents with this conversation as well.
3: Absolutely. And uh, parents having open, honest communication about sexuality with their children is um, something I'm very passionate about and have provided lots of of education, especially to young parents. And the important thing is start as soon as you can, as young as you can. And instead of thinking about having that one time the talk with your teen, however old you um, may decide, Start it and ha- have the conversation continue throughout their um, throughout their lives, and beginning from when they're um, one or two years old by teaching them the correct names of their anatomy. Um, not only can it uh, play a role in preventing possible abuse, um, but it sets them up for the future and lets them know that these things aren't shameful and that they can come to you and talk openly and honestly about these different topics, which I think is something that a lot of parents wish that their teens would talk to them about. However, they need to show their children that they are approachable and that they can talk um, openly and in a non-shaming way. So I would say um, grab a a book or two or check out some Amaze videos and um, have those conversations as frequently as possible, especially using teachable moments. Like if you see a billboard that talks about sex or you watch a movie, um, bring it up with them. Be like, hey, so what did you think about that? Or what do you know about this topic? And uh, it will be helpful in the long run if you are able to do that.
2: Answer has a, a great website for young people as well. I believe it's org. Is that right?
3: It dot org.
2: <laughs> I mentioned I have a son who's in fifth grade and, you know, he still had that experience where they separated the boys and girls. They watched a video that the parents were able to watch beforehand. And it definitely seemed more inclusive from the time uh, that um, I was in school, but it was interesting that there was still that discomfort. So I think I'll, uh, I'll mention that website to him, Taz. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I think that sounds great. And especially at that age, amaze.org. there's over 100 videos. And um, if you wanted to um, learn some stuff, uh, every one of the videos has a section underneath for parents information, as well as some questions that you can help spark the conversation with your youth.
2: It's been really interesting and so much that we didn't get a chance to touch on. Uh, maybe it's another show, but Taz Wise gerbert thank you for your time today with ANSWER, a national organization that provides sexual education training for teens and adults. When we talk about that training, it's medically accurate. It's LGBTQ inclusive and something we ran out of time, but is very important to also mention about how uh, racial bias uh, impacts uh, sexual and reproductive health. Uh, but we'd love to have you back sometime, Taz. Thank you.
3: Thank you. I would love to come on and talk about reproductive justice with you.
2: This is where we live. I'm Lucy nall Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Kat Pastor is our technical producer. Katie Pellico was on the phones today and Hannes Brown composed our theme music. We hope you have a great weekend.